0: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now, I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor, Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about HBO's vinyl, the pros, the cons, what it gets right, what it doesn't, whether it really feels like the music biz in the 70s or not. But first, we're going to talk about what we're listening to. I'm here with Brittany Spanos, staff writer at RollingStone.com, and Rob Sheffield, contributing editor. Hey, Nathan. Hi there. Hey, Brittany. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Brittany, you turned us on to the new song from Mitski, mm-hmm. which I am loving personally. Could you uh, talk about it a little bit?
1: Well, Mitski is this incredible singer-songwriter, and she's been releasing albums since 2012. And, la- and 2014's Bury Me at Makeout Creek was like a huge turning point for her. And she's still kind of doing this sort of riff-heavy, but these emotionally like very singer-songwriter-y, very cool and witty lyrics and she just released a new song called "Your Best American Girl." I'm
2: not even a could be
1: to the this song
0: has like one of my favorite like builds so far yes. of the year. it's just killer.
1: Yeah, and her voice sounds incredible. Once it builds to that riff, it's yeah, just it incredible.
0: almost it, it like almost takes you by
2: surprise. Definitely. Uh,
1: The lyrics are all about just sort of trying to fit into this mold for a partner and her trying to be um, the best American girl she can be for right. the best American boy. I mean, it's just heartbreaking, the entire song, and shes right. I just love listening to her.
0: There was one line that we loved, uh, your mother wouldn't approve of how my mother raised me. Yeah. Which is, which is like she's talking to somebody who she's just starting to get to know or... She has this weird tendency in songs about making out to
3: mention her parents in ways (laughs) that are super skeevy. Uh,
1: It seems to be a
3: theme. <laughs> right, right, right. I never
1: noticed that, but it's so. Right, <laughs> right.
0: like Townie on
3: the yeah. last album, right. But it, it's still, like, Ew, right? It, yeah.
1: it, it works
0: for me because it, it surprises you. It's like, wait, why are you mentioning why his mother wouldn't yeah. like you or her mother wouldn't like you, but it, it seems inconceivable, it's such a great song, yeah. but, you know.
1: I right? know there's it's, so much building power within her voice, and then once you get that riff and, like, those lyrics, it's just probably my early favorite song of 2016, I would definitely yeah. call it. Know. Yeah, I can't stop listening bold to statement. it. Bold statement. Yeah. <laughs> the bold song.
0: Brittany has spoken. <laughs> well, the next song we're going to talk about is from Car Seat Headrest, who everybody on staff, just about everybody, I think, so here on staff great. is yeah. super excited Unbelievable. About. They have an album coming out in May, which sounds amazing. And this is the first song from it. It's called Vincent.
2: the <laughs> Also
0: has this incredible build. It starts with this like drone, this like one note, and then gets to this incredible place. I thought of you hearing it the first time, Rob, because it kind of reminded me of Impossible Germany, the Wilco wow. song. It's it does sound like that, but it's like yeah. super long. It's like yes. eight minutes long. Go, it, going it for, the, goes, for the long song as a
3: formal concept, right? Like, <laughs> we're
0: gonna do a long '70s kind of song,
3: right?
0: Right. And I know Impossible Germany is one of your favorite songs, absolutely. Uh, and it's different from Vincent, but. It, It takes me to the same place. Vincent kind of like gets to this incredible point. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, well, car seat headrests are. uh, Well, it's weird because like
3: it's this guy Will Toledo who's who's got this semi-solo sort of setup where he he made all these records on his own, home taping, and he really made the full-on leap to a band, making a studio record. Right. Didn't go halfway. This is like his okay computer. It's, it's so ambitious, so widescreen sonically right. in terms of songwriting and in terms of emotion. Right. This is just an absolutely massive right. rock record. <laughs>
0: Everything I've heard from this new record, it, it's like you can hear the vocals. He, he was definitely covering his vocals with some you know, effects and distortion before, kind of like classic post-teenage bedroom auteur style, yeah. like washes, really very indie rocky. And now he's kind of stepping up. It's like you can almost feel him like, becoming more confident as yeah. an artist. Then we're going to segue to our third song today, brought to us. It's from another staff favorite, Parquet Courts.
3: Parquet Courts. So because Parquet Courts and Car Seat Headrest, those are the albums of the year for me so far. Probably still the albums of the year at the end of the year. Not going to argue. Human (laughs) Performance is the new Parquet Courts album. It's phenomenal. And this song, it's really funny. It's a jittery sort of travelogue song about being a a band in Europe, but it's not a typical on the road kind of song. It's more like being just miserable sort of indie dude, not so good at, connecting to the outside world kind of song.
2: feeling foreign, such a lonely habit You can't crop yourself out of the picture Out of focus, but still inside Well, the end got blurry and my heart
0: started we should say the name of the song first. It's uh "Berlin Got Blurry." Berlin Got Blurry. I should have said that earlier. Yeah, and it's got this like kind of awesome like new like Western feel for them, yeah. which I love. I love it. You know, it's kind of it's like kind of this like '60s kind of Western, which totally is appropriate for a song it's, about it Berlin like the shadows somehow. Or
3: something. Right. Yes, and there's <laughs> right. this sort of twang to it while we're right. singing these semi. Fear of Music
0: era Talking
3: Headsy lyrics about right. you know about how feeling foreign all the time is such right. a
0: lonely feeling. It's like Berlin is the new Ridgewood Queens. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: It's, uh, but just fantastic songs. It's so yeah. good, so good, and they. I think the guitarist was wearing a cowboy hat on Conan. So that, that, Unbelievable. So
3: I, I love that they're a band who. They're so prolific, and they do all these records without trying to stick to a consistent brand building. Mm -hmm.
0: I love how they do something different every time. Totally. Because they could have just kept going after that first record, which had, you know, Stoned and Starving, still probably their their biggest song, and just kind of sounded like the Modern Lovers and the Strokes, and and they did it so well. It was such a great record. And if they had kept doing that record, lots of people probably would have been happy, but they, they push it. Yeah. Every record, and they're they're so fun to listen to.
1: Yeah. And the video, too, is really great with like the shots of Berlin and everything.
0: Yeah, the video is really funny. (laughs) It totally works. All right. Well, Rob Sheffield, Brittany Spanos, thanks so much for coming on.
3: Nathan Brackett, thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. We're back. We're here to talk about Vinyl. I'm here with contributing editors uh, Rob Sheffield and Alex Morris and David Fear, who oversees our TV and movies coverage on RollingStone.com. Hello. <laughs> <And> hey, Nathan. <laughs> Hi, Hi, Rob. <laughs> Hi, Alex. Hi, David. <laughs> This is a high-powered panel, and I'm excited to talk about Vinyl, which a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this show, and whether they like it or not, they have something to say about it. They have complicated feelings about it. Would you say that's accurate?
3: Yes. In fact, it's really weird how many conversations I've had about this show where people claim they really don't like it, but they have a super original and clever <laughs> way of not liking it. Right. And something to resent about it that
0: nobody else has resented before. In a way, that makes it an accurate picture of 70s rock, because that's it, just it, how we felt right, about it. Right. Like, it's, it's kind of like it's a letdown now. If somebody doesn't have an original opinion about vinyl, it, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's...
3: What are some of I the reasons? I felt the erasure of Black Oak, Arkansas. <laughs>
0: was a really flawed part of the construction.
3: Somebody is saying that in a bar as we speak. Where was Mountain? Yes, Where
4: exactly. was Lesley and Mountain? Exactly. <laughs>
5: Well, David, yep. your, your grandmother was killed by the Mercer,
4: right? <laughs> yes, it's a, a little-known story, but my uh, my grandmother happened to be walking by the Mercer because she was such a huge New York Dolls fan who weren't playing the night the Mercer collapsed, oh, but I don't want to split to hairs. That uh, and yes, it, it jumped out and attacked her from a dark alley. And yeah, the family doesn't talk about it much. <laughs> Suffice to say, every time we go by that Gimme Coffee, we, we pour a little bit of it out for Graham. <laughs> well... I'd just like to take a poll of each of you
0: about, like, kind of your personal opinions about the show. Like, whether you think it succeeds. I feel like,
4: David, maybe as the TV and movies professional, you should... Well, Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to really love the show on paper because I'm a huge Martin Scorsese fan. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of this music, so I, I know it back and forth. I read a lot of books about the wild and crazy days of record executives, you know, in the classic rock era. So I'm actually surprised that as I start winding my way through the episodes, I really – I don't love it. At first I thought it was just kind of, oh, I have TV antihero fatigue because after you've watched uh, Walter White and Don Draper and the – the many, many antiheroes that have come through, you know, the golden age of TV over the last few years, you start to think, oh, it's another flawed guy who's got, he's brilliant at what he does, although we have really yet to see whether Richie Finestra is brilliant at what he does. He I'm assuming made, he, he, heard, he, he heard ABBA. Uh, just <laughs> right, bars, off of the, right off the bat. Three bars
5: of ABBA. Three bars. Three bars. Of of yeah. and three bars.
4: Yeah. Uh, wait, well, let me, uh, you know, I should
0: probably just add of responsibility to our uh, listeners, just if anybody out there hasn't seen Vinyl, it follows uh, Richie Finestra. Yes. A, uh, Label uh, executive. Uh, Spoiler: <laughs> He works for a label. <laughs>
3: he owns a,
0: <laughs> audio <laughs> record. Or owns so. a label, right? Owns yeah. a label, and uh, it, it, through '70s uh, New York. Uh, 1973.
4: 1973.
0: We'll see if we get to 1974. Let's hope. Let's hope. Uh, and uh, you see a lot a lot of real life and fictional rockers walk through the show. Yeah, we'll we'll
4: get to that in we'll a second. We'll get to
0: that. Okay. Um, All right, I feel like we've done enough kind of basic exposition. Right, I, exactly. I,
4: I, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know whether it was just TV anti-hero fatigue or whether it was the sort of thing where I thought, okay, well, let's just see where this goes. Maybe I'm just not into it yet because it's only the first few episodes. But then I, I've I've seen the pilot and the two episodes that have come after that. I'm starting to realize that... A, they're dropping this hero in the middle of a crazy life crisis in 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 this manic state without ever really building up to it, and so far not having him do anything to really get out of it. So it almost feels like you're not the actor always talks about the journey, right? Right. And you feel like you've watched this person go a half step on a journey, and you're already three episodes in. Right. I also think that, and I do not mean to speak ill of Terrence Winter because I'm a fan, but if you look at the last well, show he did, with and he's
0: me, one of the producers of the show, one along of the executive with, producers, yeah, along he's, with he's,
4: Scorsese and Mick and Jacker. Mick Jagger, and he's I guess he's technically the showrunner. Right. Uh, and if you look at the last collaboration that he did with Martin Scorsese, Boardwalk Empire. Again, it feels like this great show on paper and you watch it and you feel like, well, this is a show that feels like it's about a show trying to be a Martin Scorsese old school mob pick. And it wasn't until the last season, I think it was the last seven or eight episodes, where you really felt like that was the show it was supposed to be all along. It has this amazing last season. And I'm really hoping that's not what happens with vinyl because so far, well, let me give you an example. So at the end of episode three, or like around the middle of episode three, There's a sequence where everybody who owns this record company, which they had thought they might sell and have ended up not selling. Right. It's Bobby Cannaval and Ray Romano. Ray Romano is awesome. Oh my God. Ray Romano's beard. I really hope Ray Romano's beard gets some sort of Golden (laughs) Globe nomination coming next January. It's so good.
5: I like his black eye. His
4: black eye, yeah. Very very nice. Um, They're sitting around a table and they're looking at all the bands that they've dealt with and they're kind of going down the list, and they get to Grand Funk Railroad. I, I love this scene, actually. I'm <laughs> yeah. Gonna say that, yeah. It's a I really good scene, but it's very telling because they go... Yeah, they're doing okay, but we're not sure what's going to happen with them. Let's let them. Let's let their contract play out, and then we'll see if we're going to renew it. Right. And that's kind of when I realized that vinyl is the grand funk railroad of prestige dramas right now. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, correct
0: me if I'm wrong. I mean, grand funk, that's kind of an in-joke, because grand funk railroad went on to sell tons of records, didn't it? Or was it in the yeah, late 70s? Yeah, it was a yeah.
3: transitional period, because right. they were going from being uh, the big uh, album rock group of the right. early 70s to the huge number one hit single-having right. group of 1973.
0: So right. they're so, picking
3: the absolute worst possible right. moment. So that's
0: the joke, yeah, that they should have held on Let's to That's the joke
3: throughout vinyl, that right. these guys, that it's yeah. their job to predict the future, and they are so bad at it right. they can't even predict the past, <laughs>
2: right. much
3: less the present. Uh, I mean, Chubby Checker was not the driving force in 60s R&B.
2: <laughs> right. Chubby Checker was right. not...
3: Uh, right. I, I mean, they are so blinkered and and because their whole idea of what they do and who they are is based on on their brilliance, and that that nobody is brilliant or even particularly bright. Right. that that's the pathos that it's about. Right. Which, in many ways, is the existential condition of being Grand Funk Railroad that David was talking about. Right. that there's this sort of aspiring to ponderousness that all these characters, all these characters really want to be, you know, Amit Erdogan or Jerry Wexler or they want to be, you know, brilliant record guys and they're just, you know, right. they're they're dumb, wise guys who aren't tough enough to make it in the real mob.
0: That's the music business too. I mean, as Amit Erdogan said, like hopefully you just keep your eyes open and you'll bump into a genius. And these guys are just trying to bump into somebody
4: yeah. you know they're not it's not there's no master plan there's yeah no, and if they but, don't actually bump into a genius then they'll bump into an actor doing a bad impersonation of a genius <laughs> <laughs> oh all right well that that's a big topic too but well just to finish your your yeah the grand funk
0: railroad metaphor we'll find out like right if vinyl will be the grand funk railroad
4: yeah, yeah correct me if are, i'm wrong yeah. rob but the grand funk railroad story sort of ends with them selling like a gajillion albums and everybody hating them Again, a show, like, kind of to go back to the description of the show, you've had so many conversations about this show, and yet very few people have gone and been like, oh, my God, this is great. This is the TV show of this season. You know, this is the thing we've been waiting for in terms of Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger and Terrence Winter taking on 70s rock for, for HBO. So I'm really curious to see what happens. I'm curious to see when it eventually finds its groove, if you will. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I have some hope for it. To me,
0: it feels like there's so many watchable things, and I feel like it might just get better and, and hit
4: some sort of groove. It Maybe does. I'm an
0: optimist.
4: There's one. lots of watchable things, and then you get celestial cameos by musicians in dream sequences that don't really seem to make any sense. Right, you're and Jerry that's Lee Lewis. All right. You're well, let's go into
0: that. I'm curious, Alex, because you you did an excellent profile of Bobby Cannavale in the Thank latest so issue much. of Rolling Stone, and uh, I'm wondering if he you got any insight on like kind of the thinking behind like the cameos. I mean, just to there are a lot of rock star kind of fake cameos where like there's a guy who, as Rob pointed out, looks kind of like Dave Mustaine uh, <laughs> acting <laughs> as Robert Plant by, backstage at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and a lot of other people, uh, and a lot of viewers have had problems with that. Uh, do you, do you, Did he talk about that at he all? He didn't really
5: it, talk about it.
2: Right. But he did. Maybe wisely. I mean, yeah, yeah,
5: maybe. I mean, he's not in many, you know, like those, it's kind of like a cutaway right. to that stuff. Right, so right, right. So right. he didn't right. really talk about it. Right. He talked about some of the real rock stars that he met and hung out with to prepare. Like who? Well, I mean, he went to meet Jagger. They actually did a Skype conversation first (laughs) to to sort of test the waters, and I guess it didn't go that well. Uh, (laughs) Because Bobby Bobby got a message like, so you need to meet him again. (laughs) And he drove to D.C. for a Stones concert and went to Jagger's hotel room after the show, and apparently it was, like, so big. It was, like, the biggest room he'd ever seen and they like, couldn't find the bathroom it was so big and uh they talked music and Bobby said he tried not to say much but he eventually m- mentions this youtube video of a uh,
2: oh
0: wait, yeah it it's, was a it's in your it's michael jackson right and james yeah, brown and james
5: brown and, and prince, prince comes on carried by his bodyguard that he you know on <laughs> right and jagger um,
0: had never seen it jagger had uh, yeah. never seen it and right. he didn't
5: believe him that it exists and right. so they saw the video and it kind of was a bonding moment it which point he was like, okay, great, I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm gonna get this part, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, so. he, I
0: mean, I love him in this, and he, I mean, he's he's from Jersey, Bobby Cannavale, kind of and he's from like Union City, New Jersey. He just feels like he feels like he's somebody who could be have been in the music business. You know, yeah, feel, he, I, yeah. I, I do feel like he feels the part.
5: Oh, totally, you know, and, yeah, and he he said that explicitly that this was really in his wheelhouse and. You know, these, this is music he grew up listening to. And, yeah. um, long Longtime
0: Rolling Stone reader, right?
5: Longtime Rolling Stone reader, Always yeah. Always love to hear that. Which is awesome. It felt like a great part for him. And very different from his character on Boardwalk, Empire. <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 it was sort of pathological right. in many ways. Right. And very different from the cop show or the medical drama type of show. Right. That you right. see on TV a lot, so...
0: I don't know how many episodes you've seen Alex but how are you feeling about the show overall like what do you
5: Yeah so I've seen the 3 that have been released and uh, I thought the pilot was a slow burn. I liked Bobby a lot and there were, there are great moments but I wasn't thinking that I was going to love it. I I've liked this, the next two episodes better. I think the pro- the problem with the pilot for me is that it felt like a denouement. Like, it felt like things were falling apart. You know, as you were saying, David, it felt like there was no buildup to this breakdown. And now, I mean, not to have too many spoiler alerts, but it feels like they're fighting for something, and that... Uh that makes it more interesting for me. Plus, they've really introduced some some other characters in the, the the episodes two and three. I think Olivia Wilde's character is. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there with Andy Warhol and her past. And
4: can we talk about Andy Warhol for a second? Because I know a lot of people have been slagging the like, oh, the, who they get to play Robert Plant or who they get to play Alice Cooper? Right. Why are they bringing these celebrity imposters in here? This is maybe the single. Best portrayal of Andy Warhol I've seen in a film or TV show, and He's it's pretty great. He's no great. disrespect to He's the late great. great David Bowie. You are,
3: you are right. absolutely blowing my mind. Really? Seriously?
4: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Wow. Now, granted, I didn't, I don't know, I did not know Andy Warhol. It wasn't like I was hanging out at the factory with Lou and, you know, Nico and Edie sure. and all those kids. So far as you're concerned, Rob. <laughs> but usually they kind of portray Andy Warhol as the man who fell to Earth. He feels like this alien, this kind of human right. iceberg. A little, little more sort of, right. Yeah, yeah, kind of like spacey and sort of above it all and sort of this, you know peering down on the, these mortals. And this feels like an Andy Warhol who not only has empathy, but actually seems to be totally engaged and incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. which I'd always assumed Andy Warhol was very intelligent and very engaged and consistently observing stuff and using that for his art. And this is the first time seeing John Cameron Mitchell, which by the way, John Cameron Mitchell is Andy Warhol. How genius is that? Seeing him play Warhol this way to me just feels like a huge revelation. So,
0: but Rob, you, you, you do have an issue with that. You, you would not agree with that uh, assertion that this was, this was the – I mean, you're, I, no, I it thought it was a weak link. Of, of, I thought it was a weak link. Partial to Crispin Glover's portrayal of Warhol, and <laughs> 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 hey, does he, what, where, where does he actually play Warhol? Is he that does, the, does, the, does the Doors movie?
3: Maybe, I yeah. The Doors movie, yeah, be, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, as I often feel with with when they portray like somebody actually from the seventies, I was like, they should have done a thinly veiled fictionalization because yeah, it's I, really I tend it's, it's very difficult yeah. to buy. Andy Warhol is deeply warm, intuitive, really good at reading people and right. figuring out the needs that they're too too shy to express. Right. I was like, they should have just created that as a character rather than pretending that that's Andy Warhol.
0: Right, right. Uh,
3: there's zero in his biography to suggest that there were any scenes like that in his actual life. right.
0: Right. I mean, I will say that I, I do like how the show reminds you that all this stuff in the 70s was going on at the same time. Like, it was not just mm-hmm. about about Led Zeppelin in 1973. It was about Donny Osmond, too, and Grand Funk Railroad. And, and Bruce Lee in a grind and a grindhouse showing Lee. out of the dragon.
4: Yeah. and Yeah. Yeah, you know. And,
0: and I think that's one of the strongest aspects of it in terms of, like, the music. And it's like, I, I just love that, that scene that you talked about where they're going through their whole catalog and they just rattle off everybody all at once. And it's like, oh, yeah, this actually resonates as something like if you go to like a yard sale where somebody's selling all their records from the 70s that's what you see you see all the the mix of all like the schmaltz and you know skyrockets in flight along with like the new york dolls you know or yeah. probably not the new york dolls a lot of people we weren't buying their records and and that's something that's one thing i did love i mean i will say they they almost push it to an extreme because there's that scene in the first one where you have richie finestra the bobby Cannavale character pull up to Cool Herc's house, you know, like just by chance. Like It's almost like he just pulls off the Bronx Expressway and there's a hip-hop party going
4: on, like the first hip-hop party, which I loved as a fan, but, you know. Bumping into geniuses. Right, right. There's another Cool Herc scene, too, I think in the third episode that's actually really wonderful, where he's sitting around, I think he's sitting around a barbershop or maybe it's just a hall – and he's he's playing like all these records, yeah. yeah. He's sort of DJing yeah. and mixing beats and stuff. And the Lester Grimes character, the bluesman character that's in there, Finestra's old find, is just sitting there watching him do this. And these old guys are being like, "No, let the record play. Yeah. I want to hear James Brown." And he's just watching him like mix these beats and seeing, you know, the future of where this music's going. Right. Like if it was a Beatles biopic and Paul McCartney walks by a window and sees a bass in there and goes, one day I'm going to buy that. And like all of us know what's going to happen. Right. It tends to be very cheesy, but this is done just so deftly. You know, for a show that doesn't always handle these kind of moments very deftly. Right. How about we talk about some of the music stuff? Like what did
0: you guys think in terms of like, it's really hard to portray like rock and roll credibly in any, you know, movies and TV What do you think it gets right? What do you think it really gets wrong? The sort of flop
3: sweat desperation, which is really the subject of of pretty much every episode so far. That sense of something happened in the 60s and now it's fading away and how, where do we go from here? Right. Uh, The sense of desperation, which is really like what the show comes down to. And it's remarkable how there aren't other dramas about the music business it, it's really strange. In a weird way, it reminds me of a sitcom. I'm, I'm sure we all remember WKRP in Cincinnati, which is... <laughs> Brilliant show? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I, the I just the, the just... only previous TV show that I can think of that was about the music business right. in, in a way that captured the pathos and that, that these are really sad, damaged people who spend their
4: lives going from town to town playing... Right. Imagine imagine a WKRP in which it was nothing but like seven or eight Johnny Fevers. There'd be no sense of, there'd be no dynamic sense whatsoever, right? It is funny you bring that up because I did read somebody recently vociferously
0: comparing vinyl unfavorably to WKRP (laughs) in Cincinnati. It's not as
3: good as WKRP in Cincinnati. Very few TV shows are. Right. However, they've got a similar sense of, you know, The WKRP, everybody is supposed to sound like they're having a a party on the air, you know, Johnny Fever air guitaring to Layla, even though they all have incredibly miserable and isolated lives, which is what brings them to Cincinnati AM radio. And the sense that even, you know, Les Nessman and Herb Tarlick, just to to go deep on the the characters of of WKRP, but... Uh, there was so much pathos there right and that sense of despair which was very palpable already in 70s rock at the time right which is why you know the defining rock anthem of, of the 70s you know stairway to heaven free bird american pie these are all elegies these are right. all super like sad bummed out wh- does anybody remember
0: laughter songs
2: right. and right <laughs> really the mode right. that
0: that vinyl is going for right yeah. um and you had this generation of, like, rock fans who had grown up with the 60s, like the older folks, you know, who are now getting, you know, baby boomers are 25, who are now 25, 27, or 30 or something, thinking, like, oh, everything's descending into shtick. It's all Alice Cooper, and, you yeah. know, and guillotines on and the stage. And no even idea David no how bad it's going to get. Yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> or how good it's going
0: to get. <laughs> right, Well, well right, but, but, yeah. that,
3: but that specifically, they have no idea that everything they're betting on is totally... the the wrong horse. Right. That's why I'm always, I'm always drawn to that scene where, it's a scene we were laughing about before where they're listening to Abba in the room. Right. And there's this cardboard cutout of Rod Stewart in the corner of the room and he's just looking at them with his sad Rod Stewart eyes and right. taking pity on them and like wishing he could, you know, sort of violate the prime directive and you right. know interfere and help them out and warn them and say this future that you're fantasizing about it could not be more different from how you think the future is going to be. The sex and drugs are going to be much scarier in a few years than than you think they are now and rock and roll is going to going absolutely nowhere that you think it's going. Right. And 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 you can even sense that there's a Rod Stewart voice going like, well, I don't know about you lot, but I'm planning on surviving the 70s, right, me, right. and getting even richer in the bloody 80s, and, <laughs> right. and none of you guys are going to be around to see that, you know? Right, Q, right. do you think I'm sexy? Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. He's like, I'm going with this, yeah, like,
0: with this whole, like... Or, or even where it's like, Young Turks, right? right, right yeah. Turks. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> like, if, if it's going disco, I'm going disco with it. He's right, like, yeah. You know, and, and there's a the sense that he's looking and he's going like, Wow, you guys are really like right. not coming along for the ride.
0: Right. There's the scene with the AR man where he takes the nasty bits whose lead singer is played by Mick Jagger's son and tries to get them to play a kink song. That is and, so and, yeah. funny. Which I, I thought was great and, yeah. and very true to life. You yeah. know, I mean definitely that was definitely happening, I'm sure,
4: in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean you asked what the show gets right music wise, and I feel like again, while I wasn't I wasn't in those rooms back in nineteen seventy-three I've read enough rock history to know that there was this huge transitional period where it's like the 60s revolution is ending and we have to wait until punk and hip-hop come along in a couple of years before, you know, rock gets the sort of, like, thumb in the eye that it needs to just get its mojo back. Right. I wish, however, that as much as it really nails this kind of William Goldman, nobody-knows-anything industry-speak... That it really kind of captured the love that these people had for rock music in the first place. I don't really feel like that's there yet. You get that a little bit with Juno Temple's character who is the sort of office lackey who discovers the nasty bits. And is like, this band is everything that, you know, we we need, everything that rock and roll needs to get back on track, this young punk band. Right. And you really get her sense of euphoria. But for everybody else, even the New York Dolls scene where Bobby Cannavale has his epiphany – it still feels very sort of like it's the second hand high you know it's that feeling you get coming Definitely. off the totally. coke rush as opposed to the coke rush itself totally. so i've been told so <laughs> i've been <told>. <laughs> <laughs> having googled like yes having yes. WebMD'd yeah yeah coke rush
3: yeah. but uh yeah no that's an absolute brilliant point that there's a sort of come down to the whole uh, mood of it that there's right. a sense that you know this party already happened and uh, Sometimes when I watch it, I think about Anchorman and, you know, when when he says, we've been coming to the same party for 15 years now and there is nothing depressing about that. Uh, and, th- that could be you know, the title of final. Like, right. I mean, right. But there's I this, th- these guys, they've staked their existence on being
0: like, you know, perpetually like this cool, in-touch guy and right. they're so... But so often they're just not they're not going to find the next big group because they're not asking the right questions. Like, it takes, like, the office. But I'm waiting for the
5: payoff. There's got to be some payoff, right?
0: I I think you're so right, Alex, in what you said about, like, it's almost like it's two different shows. There's a first episode, which was directed by Scorsese, which feels like Goodfellas, but in the music business. And then from there, it just feels like, okay, now this is just the show. This is just a watch, you know.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's, I mean, you're you're getting the backstory. There's characters to that you can root for. There's, right. you know, a, a company to to root for. I don't know. But right. in terms of transitions, I mean, it is a great time period for the show to take place. I mean, who doesn't feel like they got to some place too late? I mean, it's like right. oh, we miss the, right. you know, the opulence of the '80s. We miss right. the, you know, um, even in the you're 60s, always trying to catch yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were the thinking about we're all the '50s. 20s that was, so was great.
0: the st- Little yeah. Richard. Yeah. He right. was that was the stuff to be there for. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah.
5: transition. I mean, that I think it's interesting. I think it's right for the show to sort of focus on that. And also, in terms of the the musicians. I mean, I, I've been trying for years to get Rolling Stone to let me do a profile of a not famous musician because <laughs> <laughs> they're like
0: one I'll refer you to my attorney, Jay Jason Fine. Uh, because no. I think
5: uh, uh, because that, that's like, you know, the striving I, that, that is interesting to me and the the despair. Right. Absolutely. And the, is it going to happen?
3: Right. The drummer from Semisonic wrote a really funny book about. About what it's like being in a, like, C or D level rock band that is, like, striving and not, but, yeah, you're right, that's really hard to dramatize.
4: What's the FX show uh, with Dennis Leary, the Sex, Drugs, and Uh, Rock and Roll? I was afraid you were going to bring that up. (laughs) Well, the reason I do bring it up is because, um, besides just to torment you, uh, (laughs) is that I interviewed Dennis Leary for a, a piece online when that show was coming out, and he was fascinated with the entire notion because he went to this uh, music school in Boston and, like, knew a bunch of people that went on to be in successful bands. He goes, but I also knew a whole bunch of people that weren't in successful bands, but they weren't ready to let go of that rock and roll lifestyle for 30 years. And so they just suddenly become these, like, you know, 45, 50-year-old guys that are like, any minute now it's going to break for me. Or maybe I had a little glimpse of success and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it. And so it's interesting to see how there's some of the, the industry – Parallels mm-hmm. in the show—how you have these guys like, At, "Once upon a time, I discovered Hannibal," and like now I gotta find my next big break. and It's gonna <laughs> right. happen, I'm telling you. Meanwhile, right. I'm gonna snort a bunch of coke and say some period-appropriate offensive things to people. And um, yeah. yeah, like yeah. that's interesting.
0: Past results are not a predictor of future success. Everybody. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well said. <laughs> wow.
4: You dude. just made that up, <laughs> didn't <you? Yeah>. dude. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe we could go around and see if we have any uh, tips for vinyl uh,
4: moving forward. My tip would be less celebrity rock and roll karaoke and more actual rock and roll. All right. All right. Rob, do you have any?
3: I think go full 70s and have an episode where everybody's locked in an elevator
4: together. (laughs) (laughs) Bottle episode.
3: Yeah. Well, they weren't called bottle episodes until recent years. Yeah. And they were always called everybody's locked in an elevator. <laughs> that was the official term. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they should embrace the 70s thing. They should have, you know, two dates for the same night. All the, the 70s sitcom ploys, they should go all out for that.
4: A all very right. special episode. Of that. Yes. <laughs> A very special episode.
0: Yeah. I, I, I'm really and looking forward
3: to their... New York City blackout episode. Right, the blackout, yeah. Right. remember you know, George Jefferson was very, very right. moved by the New York maybe, City blackout.
0: Maybe Ray Romano should be offered a job at a competing label and then not leave at the end yeah, of the episode yeah. and then <laughs> everybody's yeah. relieved. Yeah. Okay. All also, right.
3: One where characters have to take on each other's personality traits. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> yeah. That, that'd the be good. switcheroo episode. This
0: is good. This is some good. Like work last shopping. week's Broad yeah. City. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, they only waited till the third season to do that. He <laughs> right. pretends so well. to
0: be Alana. <laughs> they did that so well. They did. Alex, do you have any, any advice
3: for
5: Well, it? when I was talking to Bobby, he was talking about one of the things that really appealed to him about this character was the idea that he's an artist trying to run a business. And I wanna see more of that. I wanna see the right. artists come out. And I want, like I do, I want him to just like turn out to be this genius that right. turns it all around. And I don't right. know, hopefully that's where we're going. But
0: I hope so, we'll I hope so. Well, guys, David Fear, Rob Sheffield, Alex Morris, Thank you so much. I feel like we've done some good brainstorming here for vinyl. I hope Ray Romano
3: is out there listening, taking notes. And if you are, we love you. We love you. (laughs) Oh my God, don't change a thing. Ray Romano like snorting lines off a Chicago album <laughs> yes, I was like it's just, yes I was like it would have been one thing if they did that off of Stones or Bowie or something. No, I was no, like it's almost yeah, too much yeah, that they're it's trying to be decorated with the Chicago album I, I felt like that nailed the pathos of it right
0: there <laughs> they could have just ended
4: right there yeah, yeah so they um, just, I was yeah. like um,
3: yes I was in the tank at that point. I love the idea too that
4: like they're being the, the writers room right now the vinyl writers room listening to this podcast and being like alright full 70s how can we get the Harlem Globe <laughs> trotters to show up yes <laughs> totally yes, <laughs>
0: yes. metal arc lemon pour they a little they have mentioned
4: roe v wade yeah. right. also
5: 1973
4: 73. Right. it's
5: 73 it's right. a, you know right. when's that coming
0: I, I just have a feeling that
3: this is probably going to happen next season where they're flipping through the newspaper and they say right look
5: yeah. ford to city <laughs> drop dead <laughs>
0: right. yeah. ford you turkey
3: you know
5: <laughs>
0: yeah they pick up where mad men left off yeah, yeah exactly right. just yep. year yeah, by almost year literally, yes right. yeah right All right. Well, guys, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. And we're back. I'm here with Brittany Spanos, staff writer at RollingStone.com, and Susie Exposita, producer at RollingStone.com and a contributor. And we're going to talk about a list that's gotten a lot of attention on our site, like most of our lists, But maybe this one even a little more? I don't know. What do you guys think? (laughs) I don't know.
1: It's a very passionate topic.
0: It's a passionate topic. Yeah. Anyway, the topic is emo. <laughs> the list is the 40 greatest emo albums of all time. And we've gotten a lot of passionate letters and uh, a lot of feedback and a lot of traffic on the site over it. And Susie, you were one of the main drivers of the list. And Brittany, you wrote a lot of the blurbs. And uh, I guess I want to start with the overall question, just for like, listeners at home who, are, who might not be emo fans. And also, we're going to answer some reader mail, too. I want to answer the question, What is emo? There's a comment from uh, somebody with a username, Viper68. What in the Hello Kitty is an emo? So who could answer this question? Susie, can you tell the people at home? <laughs> I'm just going to What in
1: the Can Hello you tell Kitty readers Kitty? at home what,
0: what emo is?
6: I'm going to take the postmodernist route on this question. Uh, there are many emos. <laughs> There's a multitude of emos. <laughs> <laughs>
0: just like just like emotions, there, yeah. there are many emos. Yeah.
6: Yep, all all my teenage feelings. Right,
0: <laughs> that really is what emo is, right? It's, te- it's teenage feelings, ultimately. Yeah,
6: essentially. I think a lot of people trace emo as a genre back to DC in the mid '80s. Indeed. Particularly with Rites of Spring*. Rites of Spring was a band comprised of a bunch of people who played hardcore punk music, but they wanted to take a more emotive route, right. so they called it emotive hardcore.
0: Right, that's, or, emotional hardcore, right?
6: Yeah, yeah. or emotional hardcore. Yeah, or emotional hardcore, and that's like how people have described right. that band, which also just precipitated this turn in punk music right. and hardcore music.
0: And that got shortened to emo core, which be, and then it became just emo. Right. Yeah, yeah.
6: There's a really funny clip in the documentary Salad Days, where. Ian Mackay is, like, playing an Embrace show, and he's like, I heard people called us emo core. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
0: Which is interesting, yeah, because a lot of people say that, right? That emo core was actually, like, an insult at first. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they rejected, much like grunge, in a way. like the term grunge in the early 90s. Like, yeah. grunge bands, like, hated the term grunge, and, like, emo bands hated being called emo.
1: And that lasted for a long time with sort of this idea of, not wanting to be identified as emo. That was right. in some way like this marketing tool or was just a weird term in a lot of ways. It's kind yeah, of a dirty like word a until recently. Or, yeah. Yeah. A lot of bands just refused to be called emo until I feel like in the past few years it's sort of become a more comfortable term and right. people are okay with it. But right. yeah. Right. I think it's all about
6: that vulnerability factor that mm-hmm. people just don't want to identify with especially in genres like punk and hardcore especially if you are a musician who feels particularly masculine and you want to make masculine music like the worst thing someone can tell you is that it's emotional because I think everybody still to this day operates with this idea that like being emotional is is something
1: that's not very like tough or masculine right yeah just especially the scenes that they come from like punk and hardcore and screamo and all those scenes are just they didn't start with the root of them wanting to be like letting go of your emotions and the vulnerability and all that but yeah
0: right and for me that's like a key for emo it's like it was coming from hardcore punk and and Mm -hmm. that was just mostly pure aggression or a lot of aggression and that was it was a big thing for people to just to Talk about their feelings or their significant other or how they felt about it. So I'm just gonna go through like, the top three bands on this list: are Sunny Day Real Estate's "Diary," "Rights of Spring," "Rights of Spring," and from
2: 1985,
0: "In the Promise Ring." No trees rose, no and then from there it goes. It spans like I mean, this is spans now. 35 years of emo i mean we have bands from the 80s from the 90s jawbreaker the 2000s are well represented as well so at this point emo is is a pretty it's like a middle-aged genre which is kind of crazy for such something that's like teenage music i think a lot of people get into emo when they're like in middle school or or early high school when they're feeling a lot of new emotions yep i want to read one letter from a reader because one of the bigger issues, or, or one of the most letters we got, was about where this one band, Fugazi, was. This is from the username uh, Words on Pages. First, where is Fugazi? Do you know what emo was called before it was called emo? When we didn't have a word for this Fugazi sounding music. We called it post-hardcore because minor threat equals hardcore. Fugazi equals post-hardcore. Then uh, it goes into talking about Rites of Spring. But I'll, I'll skip to the next letter. Uh, number one is great, dot, dot, dot. Fugazi, question mark, question mark, question mark. Repeater should be in there as well as 13 songs. Susie, can you uh, answer some of the reader questions about Fugazi? What what was the process of making the list? And can you talk about like kind of what the decision making process for not including Fugazi was?
6: I actually agree with these readers that Fugazi was a fundamental building block in emo and generally in punk music and especially like because they experimented with different sounds and time signatures, different kinds of song structures. They were extremely influential.
0: All right, just for people who aren't familiar with Fugazi, Fugazi was a band founded by Ian MacKaye, Minor Threat, and they were a really important post-hardcore band.
6: I think the idea of this list was to create a sort of family tree, starting with what we call emotive hardcore, which I don't really think is what Fugazi was going for.
0: Fugazi are one of my favorite bands, but I feel like they almost like transcend emo in a way. I think they were super influential, you know, but they also were, they were something else at the same time. It's almost like, I don't know, people say blue tear helped influence metal the, it, but Blue Chair was something totally different they, yeah. you know and I I don't really see them in that tradition necessarily
6: yeah and also like Guy Picciotto had other outlets for his emotional needs like Rites of Spring and the far more underrated band One Last Wish if anything people should probably be angrier with us for skipping One Last Wish
2: <laughs> <laughs> take that readers just
6: saying <laughs> right <laughs> But the process was very grueling. It took us about two weeks of sparring on the internet. Um, <laughs> there, there <were laughs> as the all,
1: as all the best lists come from sparring on the internet, <laughs>
6: right? Yeah, there was like seven of us fighting right for right. two weeks mm-hmm. over this list that we created in a Google Doc. You know, there were far more than forty albums on this list when mm-hmm. we started. And we really did have to debate what the meaning of emo was. Right. We had to really get into the difference between emo and pop punk, for example. Right. That was a highly contentious issue right. between us that I still don't think that we've resolved,? Right. But I well that's a good question. Like
0: what is yeah, where do you come down Brittany on this, like emo versus pop punk? Some people think Newfound Glory or emo. Would you call them pop punk or emo? or what makes a band pop punk or, or emo?
1: It's a very fine line, especially once you get out of the 90s and get into, like, the early millennium, sort of, like, the Fall Out Boys and the, you know, New Found Glories and all of those bands. And there's a lot of crossover between the newer emo movement and what pop punk was sort of evolving in right. once we hit around 2003, 2004-ish. And right. especially Fueled by Ramen, once that became an even bigger label with Paramore and Panic at the Disco. and. Right. Those bands really crossed a lot of those genre lines, but for me essentially pop punk comes down to a lot more playfulness and immaturity. Right. I think like blink 2 has some emo moments, but right. I wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily call them an emo band. I right. think they definitely stick to that pop punk Right. Element. And so with Newfound Glory, I think they're definitely a lot more pop punk than they are emo.
0: That makes sense to me. I mean, for me, correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, I I think it's like almost about your intentions. Like Mm -hmm. if you're an emo band, I mean, I I feel like there's always some sensitivity and there's always like some sense of outrage or moral, not out or emotional outrage, not angst. Yeah, angst. Um, And yeah, whereas pop punk, you know, is, yeah, it tends to be more playful.
1: Yeah.
6: I think that it comes down to the roots of the sound, right? Like, I don't think of New Found Glory as emo because I think that they have more in common with a band like the Descendants or later mm. like, you know, Vans Warped Tour Punk like MXPX or the Ataris. Like, I think they have more in common with that sound than they right. might Rites of Spring. Yeah. Same I with Blink-182. Tol-
0: totally. I would think of them, yeah, as just like what we yeah used to call like Warped Tour bands. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Totally. The band Brand New is on a, a couple spots here. <laughs> and I would, you know, whether you like them or not, I do think think of them as a quintessential emo group. I mean, there's yeah. one song that they have Jude Law in a semester abroad, which is like for me like one of the most ultimate like emo songs is like this guy yelling at his girlfriend like you know enjoy your British you know uh, boyfriend you're about to leave me I don't know what's gonna happen
1: also peak emo title too just really lengthy some type of pop culture reference right
0: Right. how
1: dare you study abroad without me right what
0: about my feelings (laughs) If there's, like, a message for a lot of emo songs, it's like, let's take it back to me. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But what about me? Right. Right.
6: Which is why I wrote the review for Your Favorite Weapon, but I also wrote the review for um, Reiner Maria and... I I think like Reiner Maria having a woman like front the band, Caitlin Dumaray, like her lyrics, I think they they added to the complexity of emo as a genre being like Hey, actually like the subject of the majority of emo songs are these like tense heterosexual relationships. Absolutely.
2: (laughs)
0: Usually from a male perspective. Usually from a male perspective. Almost all yeah, yeah.
6: And she's like, nope. Totally. Look at me. <laughs> well, what are,
0: right, here's one of my, per, right, for me, it's like emo, as it grew, it became such a like a local scene-based thing. I mean, it started as a scene-based thing and so I think maybe that's the difficulty of doing an emo list too because so much of it is about people's experiences with the band around their corner.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and especially, it, yeah, like, I mean, I grew up in the Chicago scene so Fall Boy was such a big influence on the emo scene that grew that grew there even after the Chicago emo scene of the 90s. Like, right. Once Fall Boy, like, Became really big in around 2005, 2006. That completely changed how emo functioned in Chicago and the way the scene-based emo and pop punk scenes were fusing together.
0: In making the list, Susie, and I know it wasn't just you. Like, how did you deal with people's like kind of regional biases? You know, like I'm sure there are some people saying, "No, this group is you know, this so important <laughs> to me." Was that a, an object of discussion?
6: I'm from Florida, and I got a lot of hate from people being like, "Where are all the Florida bands?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> did they know that you were supposed to be representing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're, like, I friends actually, of yours from Florida. Yeah. I
6: actually didn't really like most of the music coming out of Florida when no. I actually lived in Florida. Although I really... It can be
0: told. Oh, yeah.
6: <laughs> no, I, I mean, I really liked Hot Water Music. They were on our list. They just didn't make the cut. Because, right. honestly, 40 albums is not enough to encompass the entirety of for sure. this genre. For sure. It's just not. Yeah. Um,
0: for sure, because we're talking about yeah, for now four decades of emo. Yeah, and so, yeah, and it's not enough.
6: I mean, when I was a teenager in Florida, that was when fueled by ramen was really kicking off, mm-hmm. and that was the Florida thing. But I absolutely hated it, and at that point, I was listening to Braid, and I was like, I would rather listen to Braid, because right, 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 right.
0: that's who I was. I so you you were able to look past your yeah the regional yeah. biases. Yeah. Well, Susie Exposito, Brittany Spanos, thank you so much for coming in to answer the question of what is emo. I feel like we've made some headway. (laughs) If anybody wants to check out the list of the 40 greatest emo albums of all time, they can go to rollingstone.com, and I encourage them to do so. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks for listening. To subscribe, check out our page on iTunes.